I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In this, his first epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul declares that the message of the sinless, virgin-born, God-man, Jesus Christ, dying on a cross in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of their sin, then rising from the dead to give victory over death to all who repent of their sins and turn to Him in saving trust, that message is the power of God on earth. It is the power of God in the sense that it supernaturally transforms sinners. It gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead, reconciling alienated sinners to God and progressively transforming them into holy people. One evidence of this unearthly power is the gospel's ability to conquer any soul. This is written by the Apostle Paul, after all and to obliterate every social and cultural boundary. The Jew of Jews going among Gentiles. I think in this light as a foil of entertainer Michael Jackson, who was laid to rest this past week, nearly 31 million people watched the memorial service. It's a lot of people. 1.6 applied to physically be there at the service. People from many nations, and this is one thing that kind of shocks me a little bit, as you see America and you excuse it on a lot of levels, but then you see people in completely diverse cultures weeping openly in public for this man. And you say, how is that? The king of pop, pop apparently crossing many lines. How does a man whose life is a moral cesspool and embarrassingly eccentric command such unashamed adoration from so many diverse people? How is this possible? I think the answer is in that phrase, the king of pop. Jackson gave people what they wanted at the most primal level expressing passions that popularly resonate in the deepest recesses of human hearts, transcending national boundaries. But by very stark contrast, the gospel of Jesus Christ is radically countercultural. It assaults the natural inclinations of our souls to people in love with themselves and squeezing life for all that it's worth, Jesus says what? Take up a cross. Come and die. He calls the self-righteous, think of it, to repent. He calls the morally depraved to holiness of life. He calls the proud to abject humility. He calls the self-satisfied and the sensual to abandon every pleasure for Him. Michael Jackson perhaps touched something in the hearts of a lot of people that was exactly what they wanted to hear and think and believe and feel, and for that he was popular. Jesus Christ assaults us at the very core of our being with everything that we are and says, I want you to change. And here's the power of the gospel. People, listen to his call. 
They do it by the power of God. That power of Jesus is working in this world. It's transforming people to become people they're not. Against every natural inclination, the gospel of Jesus Christ conquers hearts across every human barrier and unites them. Men and women, great and small, fit and infirm, young and old, rich and poor, from any nation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a transformational force capable of conquering any heart for God and uniting, as it does, every believer in the body of Christ. There are few places in the New Testament that so dramatically display this transformational power and this uniting in Christ as we find in the narrative of Paul's mission to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. If you'll work your way there, Acts chapter 16. To this point, the emphasis of the book falls on the messages of Paul as it's traced his journeys. But here we encounter three individuals liberated by the gospel. We've come in our journey through Acts to about the halfway point of the second missionary journey. The first ten verses of Acts 16, you remember our record of frustration for the evangelistic team of Paul and Silas as God continues to thwart their plans. At verse 7, we read that they had come up to Mysia attempting to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. As we review on the map, Remember, this second journey is heading from east to west across what is today Turkey. There was efforts here at Antioch to head northward up into Bithynia, but God sends them westward. They finish here at Troas, and from there, seeing this call to Macedonia, this area here of Greece, and they will work their way from Troas up to Philippi as we hone in there on that Area. This is the journey that we will see in Acts 16 from this port city of Troas across the North Aegean Sea up to Philippi. There will be a brief stop at Samothrace, this mountainous island which was a typical stopping point across the sea, 156 miles by ship across here to the city of Philippi, actually landing at Neapolis, then 10 miles inland to Philippi on the... Roman road that directs them there across that continent, right in, on, on that road is Philippi, this great city. What we're going to see, again, the emphasis has been largely on the preaching of Peter and Paul, the apostles, and the message that they've proclaimed. But what Luke does here at Philippi is hones in on three individuals and their deliverance by the risen Christ. In the first segment, we see the salvation of a wealthy Jewess and her household, beginning at verse 11. Of course, we're dealing here with the journey across. So setting sail from Troas, Acts 16, 11, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, that's that mountainous island, probably spending the night there, the following day at Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we remained in this city some days. 
Uh, you remember in chapter 16, verses 6 through 8, Luke speaks of they and them. You can see that just as you look at the verses at verse 7 and 8, the thee and the them that uh, he uses to describe the missionary band. Then at verse 10, Luke begins to use the word we. Suddenly, it's God who has called us. From Troas to Philippi, it's all we. And Luke shows the typical Greek penchant for nautical details as they make that journey across. When the missionary band leaves Philippi, everything is once again they and them. When the missionary band returns to Philippi on its way back, everything is once again we. And that carries on across the sea and further. It doesn't take a sleuth to figure out here that Luke has joined the band at Troas, was probably heading across by ship to Philippi at the same time. We don't know how they met. We don't know any of these details. But he makes his way with them across the sea. And he uses right there in verse 11 a nautical term that completely misses us. He says that, the, that they made their direct voyage to Samothrace, which we would take as the one at the helm of the ship didn't mess around. He kept a real straight course. But what it actually means is they went with the wind at their back. There was a strong wind that blew them across the Aegean Sea. It's almost as if God was in a hurry to get them there. It takes them two days to get there. On the journey back, five days. Reasons we don't know necessarily, but there's a good wind at the back. 156 miles in two days by sea in that time was an excellent time. They arrive at Neapolis, the port city of Philippi. Remembering the major cities are a bit inland for protection. And they land at Neapolis, this port city, and then make their way 10 miles inland on the Via Ignatia, a grand Roman road whose massive stones can still be found today and stretches across the Greek peninsula. Takes them right from Neapolis to Philippi, this prominent city as we see in verse 12. Probably a little bit of local pride. Very likely that Luke comes from the city of Philippi, at least was trained there at the famous medical school. Philippi has a rich history. We don't have time to get into it, but it was a proud and influential Roman city. Prosperous, excellent agriculture, commercial, educational assets were in place there. As Paul, well, let me say as well, and this is very important to the narrative that follows, it was a free city. That is, it was free to govern itself, referred to as a Roman colony. It was a little Rome right here. So it wasn't taxed, and it was very happy about this standing of being free governing and non-taxed and seen as a Roman colony because of some of the unique history that had taken place there, which again, we don't have time to get into. But as Paul stepped off that ship at Neapolis, no one realized that this one small step for man was a giant leap forward for the gospel of Christ. What has happened? The gospel has reached Europe. The first steps, the first flag planted here, in a sense, as God wins their way across the Aegean, it is the risen Christ who stakes His flag and says, this city is mine. I will transform people here by the Gospel. This continent is mine. And the mission begins so simply at first, so unassumedly. Verse 13, 
And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Another bit of bridging that we need to do here culturally. Where does Paul always start his evangelistic efforts? At the river? Always at the synagogue. Thank you, that's right, at the synagogue. What's he doing? Now there's no synagogue here in Philippi and the reason is the women that are described here, there weren't enough men. You had to have ten men, leaders of households, and when you had ten men, leaders of households, you were supposed to start a synagogue according to the rabbis. No synagogue in Philippi. So they go looking for this place of prayer, which they assume will be by the river. There's reasons for that in the rabbinic writings. They find some women. Now, many of the rabbis would have said, oh, we're not going to waste my time here teaching some women. In that day, that would have been the orientation of many of the Jewish rabbis. But this is an entirely different message that Paul conveys. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. And as was true with his master, Jesus, Paul looks at women on equal status with men and proclaims the gospel to them. Preaching here at the riverside to the women. Verse 14 An amazing thing happens as Christ begins His conquest. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Thyatira is across the Aegean. From Troas, where they left, it's in that region. Thyatira was famous for producing purple dyes and manufacturing purple cloth, which only the wealthy could afford, an industry monopolized by people of cultural influence. Putting this together with the fact that Lydia is from Thyatira and has a household, which doesn't mean just children, but slaves, in Philippi, She was either representing a very wealthy merchant from Thyatira in Philippi or perhaps owned a retail shop here herself. At any rate, she was a Gentile who followed the Jewish faith and the Hebrew Scriptures. So there's common ground here as Paul takes the Hebrew Scriptures and proclaims Jesus Christ the Messiah. What happens? Well, Lydia was well-schooled. She was such a smart woman and was pretty good in her nature, and so she trusted the gospel. Is that what it says? The Lord opened her heart. She heard the message, and God did a transforming work. This fits very nicely with 13 and verse 48, where God appointed her then to eternal life. It fits very well as well with chapter 2, verses 38 and 40, where Paul exhorted her, we would assume on the authority of that text, he exhorted her to repent and save herself from a crooked generation. The Bible is consistent on this emphasis. Sinners are responsible to receive, to trust Christ as Savior, and God opens their hearts to respond to that call. God does a work and opens her heart. God always does a work to open hearts when anyone trusts the gospel of Christ. He opens Lydia's heart here. He's had this agenda for some time. Go to Macedonia. And here the woman responds in saving faith. 
Two evidences of her salvation, verse 15. After this, she was baptized, and her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The evidences are what? Public baptism and a public sharing of the truth of the gospel of Christ. She wants her household to hear. She identifies with Jesus in baptism. Jesus commands everyone who places saving faith in him to demonstrate that reality by being baptized. Baptism does not save anyone. It is, however, the God-ordained means by which we, in faith, identify publicly with Jesus Christ crucified and risen. She's baptized. Second evidence is what? Hospitality. When God opens my heart to the gospel, He invariably and naturally opens my home to the advance of the gospel. Do you open your home for the service of Jesus Christ? Do your possessions belong to Him? We have many opportunities, don't we, in the context of this assembly. I thank God for those who for many years now have opened their home on Sunday nights to home groups. Why? To draw people together and to proclaim the message of Christ crucified and risen. Hospitality. There are visitors that people have over to eat in their homes. People that are in spiritual need to whom we reach out. There are some who take in children when other families are in particular need. There are times even of joyful moments as showers before weddings where people in our church open their homes to others. There's leadership breakfasts and ministry meetings and emphases. Times when there is the advantage of meeting in someone's home. An open door to our home should evidence that God has made Himself at home in our hearts. That's why we should do it. We're living in a culture where the homes are being closed up and shielded from the outside influences. No one wants anybody in their house. May we as the followers of Christ say with our houses, it all belongs to Him. We use it in His service. Has He given you a home? Has He given you a place? That place is to be used for the advance of the gospel. Lydia perceives this intuitively and immediately. She wants her household to hear the gospel of Christ. Those servants who were living there with her, perhaps family members, extended family members. We don't know if she was a widow, if she was divorced, if she was single. Very unlikely that would be the case, but no mention of a man here in the home, or perhaps her husband was a Gentile. But she wants her household to hear the gospel of Christ. She put the money that God had given to her in this world, which probably was substantial, she put it into play for the world to come. That is true conversion. We see the salvation of a Jewess, of at least of, as one who is following the Jewish faith, but a wealthy, connected, influential woman. The scene shifts then on this joyous moment in her home to verse 16 where we find uh, the deliverance of a demon-possessed slave girl from her masters. Verse 16, and we were going to the place of prayer as we were going. By the way, stop there quickly. Why are they going to the place of prayer again? 
Church is the next day at Lydia's house, we'll assume. They're going again to evangelize. That's the reason they're going to this pre-synagogue meeting here. We were met, verse 16, by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. We should weep here. This servant girl has, as the text says, a spirit of python, literally. Referring to that Greek mythological snake or dragon, the python, that was killed by Apollo. But the Greek culture, uh, was there were demon-possessed women who were believed to have what they called the spirit of python. They were called pythonesses. There were so many of them, there's a term for them. The women of python. They spoke demonic oracles purportedly revealing things about the future. It was false through deception, through subtlety, through perhaps some knowledge that the demonic realm has that human beings don't. They sold this girl's ability, if you want to call it that, her possession by this demon. They sold her in order to tell others the future, and people paid them, I would assume, handsomely for it. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, What would you think she's going to cry out? Don't listen to these men. They're false teachers. They're troublemakers. No, what does she say? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now this is a passage turned right on its head. Why on earth would a demon proclaim the truth? And why, proclaiming the truth, would Paul stop this woman? There are at least six references to this strategy of Satan in the Gospel writings. One of Satan's chief strategies is to put partial truths in the mouth of false prophets. What did Jesus do every time a demon proclaimed him as Messiah or as the way of salvation? Jesus always stopped them. Quiet, silence was his command. And Paul is doing the same here. As bad as a false message is in the mouth of a false prophet, a true message in the mouth of a false prophet is often worse because it denigrates the gospel sooner or later. She used the right words, but her words could be filled up with any number of meanings and they carried no call to repentance. The Most High God. Well, who is that if you're a Greek? That's Zeus, right? The way of salvation. All Romans and Greeks were speaking about salvation. They filled it up with all kinds of different meanings. We have false teachers today who jam the airways with the same kind of messages. They're messages that use true words, but they can be filled up with different meanings by a lost culture, and it brings in all kinds of money. But it's a true word in the mouth of a false prophet, and eventually it becomes horribly twisted. And so Paul says, enough. 
His annoyance with this girl was not merely psychological. We would naturally read it that way from our Western perspective, but he was under demonic attack. He is being patient and waiting upon the timing from God. He's being patient to see if this situation will go away. Knowing that it will not, he is infused with spiritual strength and says, out of her, leave her. And with power in that very hour, she is delivered. Dennis Johnson writes so well, Paul and Silas, had they been mere religious entrepreneurs, as we see everywhere today, what would they have done? They would have welcomed such an endorsement from a recognized local authority on matters mysterious. But they knew that truth in the mouth of a deceptive liar is about the surest way to lose the gospel. What was really at stake here is the glory of God. Think of the book of Isaiah at the very heart. In fact, the crescendo of that book. God stands forward and says, let any God arise who can tell the future. Let them speak. God stakes His godness, His sovereign providential standing and power on the fact that He can predict the future because He's writing it. This demon possessing this woman is standing on God's ground, is seeking purposefully to siphon away glory from God. Paul knows it, and with no hocus-pocus, with no willingness to ally with false witnesses, Paul simply casts the demon out. A little conjecture here, but sandwiched between two accounts of genuine conversion... And knowing the connection between demonic deliverance and salvation in Christ's ministry, he saw they had the faith to be healed, or go and sin no more, or something of the like, we might assume that the Jesus who delivered her from the demon has delivered her soul in salvation. We do not know that. There's no more given on her here, so we cannot assure that. But that seems to be the tilt of the passage. None of this, let me say, went over very well with the girl's masters. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, the gospel has just messed with their agenda. There's a play on words here that misses us in the English translation. What's literally said in this context is that Paul cast out the demon and thereby cast out the income of the girl's masters. Or as Longenecker puts it, in exercising the demon, he has exercised their source of income. The gospel had a direct impact upon the economic futures of these handlers, and they were livid. They saw their hope of gain was gone. Verse 19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. What's, that? What's the point of that? Prejudice. Jews aren't highly accepted in this city. There's not even a synagogue in this grand city. They are disturbing our city. There's national pride. We're a Roman colony, us Philippians, they advocate customs that are not lawful, illicit religion. They're not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They're pulling out all the wrong cards. It has nothing to do with truth. And as one has pointed out, isn't it interesting, they're selling this girl to tell others the truth 
They don't even believe what she's saying themselves. They dismiss it. These people are troubling the peace. What contrast with Paul's message. Paul declares a free message of deliverance from spiritual bondage. These men sell a message for personal profit, and they keep people in bondage. They promised inside information that was worth paying for so that they could make money. Paul was preaching a message, the way of salvation, the road of salvation, as Johnson puts it, for which admission and tolls had been paid by another. Challenged by the loss of this revenue, they fight back and they stir the crowd, verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. This probably doesn't mean contextually, both in the context of the culture as well as what we read further, that the crowd itself attacked them physically. But they were accustomed, Roman citizens, to joining in such prosecution. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates, not the crowd, tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What had they done? They had liberated a woman from bondage. They had set a demon-possessed woman free. What do they get for it? Incarceration. A message of freedom responded to with jail. Ironically, the only ones to violate any Roman laws here are the Roman officials. The lictors, as the Latin word would have it, were those who came with rods to inflict punishment upon wrongdoers. Maybe a little bit akin to our uh, policemen who carry a nightstick. They would walk around with these sticks and everyone knew who they were. They were to inflict physical pain on anybody who got out of line with Roman law. Well, they've broken Roman law to do this. And it is a fulfillment of Acts 9 and verse 16. I will show him, said God, when Paul was saved, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What is happening here is Paul and Silas are filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Nothing lacking to provide salvation. What's lacking is people don't know Jesus suffered. And it is through the body of those who suffer that they proclaim the suffering Christ to those lost in sin. All Christian evangelists do is liberate people, but they are incarcerated for it at times. Johnson gives clear evidence of this. I believe we've read it before, but an excellent statement. When God's kingdom spreads through the Spirit and the Word, it shakes to its roots the system of power and profit in which the pillars of society have sought their security. Threatened with the loss of what in the end they cannot keep, they retaliate against messengers who offer a priceless gift that cannot be lost. Faithful servants of Jesus Christ recognize that suffering is intrinsic to their pilgrimage. Suffering is not inevitable because Christians go out of their way to alienate those around them. On the contrary, their behavior attracts the respect and admiration of the people, but they overturn the patterns of pride 
and exploitation that permeates sinful human society. Those with vested interest in maintaining the injustices of the status quo cannot be expected to welcome God's good news to the poor, His release of the oppressed. That's why we, as a church, have people knocking on Shambhu's door in India, sitting at his dinner table and seeking to intimidate him. You're messing with us, and we want you out of here. The deliverance of a demon-possessed woman results in nothing but the suffering of God's evangelists. A third vignette, salvation of a Roman jailer and his household. Verse 25, about midnight in this same context, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Midnight in that culture without electricity is really the middle of the night. Some of you went to bed after that last night. You're not thinking anything about it other than you're a little tired, perhaps. I'm with you. This is the middle of the night. This is when everybody's asleep. Picture this. Their backs are flayed open. No dressing, no gauze, no antibacterial gel, no bed, no food. Their feet are chained to a post. The insects are after their oozing wounds. They're in severe pain. And listen, what is that we hear? It's not the whimpers of men in pain. It's not bitter words of complaint or despair or self-pity. What we hear is singing. They're singing songs to the praise of God. This is not a sound the prisoners or jailers are accustomed to hearing, and they listen intently to what they're singing. The prisoners listening to them their songs undoubtedly inspired by the Hebrew Psalter were deep in theological content. They were songs of salvation. They were songs of trust in God. There are simplistic songs and choruses that we sing at times that I think are right and good. But I would say in caution to any song that we sing that is a song of Zion, that is a song of God that's not good in the inner prison when you're suffering, throw it away. It's no good. Their songs that they touched were songs of depth that buoyed their souls and sustained them in this time of suffering for Jesus Christ. What kinds of songs are those? And how is this possible that they would sing? It's possible for people who say to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's possible for those, according to Galatians 6 and verse 14, who boast in the cross of Jesus, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And it's only possible then if our glory is in ease and our glory is in gaining our rights, we're not going to be singing in jail like this. You can sing praises to God in suffering only when you value the gospel more than your life itself. Is that unfair? Didn't Jesus say, He who comes after me, let him take up his cross and follow me? He did not promise ease 
and success and wealth and blessing upon blessing as our world would define it. He promised suffering. That's what they're doing. And they're singing. Their pain was intense. Their misery in that prison at that point in time was acute. And yet they realized they were two of the most privileged men on earth. And so they sang to God. We have been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Well, as one commentator put it, Europe's first sacred music concert brought down the house. And indeed it did. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. God announced his verdict regarding the singing evangelists. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul, obviously seeing him in a light that the jailer had struck, cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, that is, lights to go into the inner parts of the prison. He rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Maybe he picked up information from their songs earlier in the night. Undoubtedly, he had heard, they had as much information in their world as we do in ours, without the technology, but it word traveled fast. He undoubtedly heard why they had been put in prison. The Romans didn't flog people and then keep it silent. They let everybody know why the people were being flogged so they would all take account and not do the same thing. And undoubtedly, he had heard the message of the slave girl's oracle. These are men who proclaim a way of salvation. Maybe he's just asking to be spared from what he's facing. But in any event, he was distraught, humbled, and open to counsel. And Paul and Silas preached Christ to the man. The summation of that message is found in verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This verse is obviously shorthand. There is no reference to repentance, to, uh, no reference to sin, no mention of Jesus' death and resurrection or what exactly had been done to reconcile sinners in salvation history. None of that is here. It is shorthand. It stands as an effective and appropriate summation of the gospel. It is believe in the Lord Jesus. At its heart, at its core, that's what the gospel is. But those that would take this message and say that's all that the gospel is, I think are really off base, and verse 32 makes that quite clear. Let's not forget verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They said much more than believe in the Lord Jesus. Whoever Jesus might happen to be in your mind and whatever belief might mean, just believe in him and you're saved. No, 
They took him and they proclaimed the full message of the gospel to him, which at its heart is believe in the Lord Jesus. And he took them, evidence of conversion, that same hour, verse 33, of the night, and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Again, baptism is the expected response to one who has embraced Christ. It is that person's privilege to stand before other believers and to say, I have come in my soul to identify with the death and resurrection of Christ. This man stands and does that. I am going to X a significant portion of this sermon, sadly, but I would like to just mention that those who promote the baptism of infants who are completely unconscious of the death and resurrection of Christ uh, repair to this text in part to say this is evidence of infant baptism. There's a household here. There were infants in the household in that culture, in that setting. Well, uh, we will not have time to look into that here, but I just say these are people to whom the message was proclaimed. And I think it is right to assume that it's those who heard the message in response who were baptized. Not necessarily every single individual of the household if there were none who believed. The entire household, that phrase is often used in the New Testament to mean all to whom it pertains. That idea. Well, we must move on. But then he brought them up into his house, verse 34. Think of this. They were in his prison. Now they're in his house. And he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You see, believing in God is synonymous with believing in Jesus, verse 31. There's so many interesting points here. Chrysostom brings these out. He bound them, they freed him by being bound. He washed them of their wounds and was washed from his sin. He fed them food. They fed him the Word of God. What immeasurable joy pulsated through the jailer's dining room that night. Can you imagine it? This household responding to faith in Christ. That was a meal so fine, a bloody back seemed insufficient pay. Now, I, this is really weird. But the same jailer takes the same prisoners and walks them out of his house and back into the jail and shuts the door. That's his job. God will take care of the rest of it. And I have no doubt... Paul assured him, that's exactly what you're going to do here. Verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. I will admit my assumption here. I believe the Apostle Paul was one of the smartest men you'd ever run into, and I believe he was as wise as a serpent. I don't think there's anything he did in any of the issues of suffering for the gospel that was without purpose. Paul is playing these guys like a fiddle. 
He knows exactly what he's doing. What would it have been had he said to the people of Philippi, you must suffer for the cause of Christ? But he played the trump card of Roman citizenship right up front. They'd go, well, we can't do that. Had they avoided the flogging, they would have also sent the message in Philippi that they were, first of all, Roman citizens and secondarily Christians. They wanted it the other way around, and what they did made that crystal clear. Never did Paul want to appear as a Roman citizen with a religious hobby, but always as a Christian who just so happened to be a Roman citizen. I believe... Paul zigs and zags the way that he does by answering one simple question, what is best for the gospel? It was best for him to suffer the flogging. It was best for him now to take what in that culture was utter humiliation and to turn it right on its head and to humiliate them so that he would be providing freedom, some level of freedom for the followers of Christ in that town. He could hold their crime over their heads in order to protect the fledgling church. And with masterful strokes, he pulls this off. Notice verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and think of this phrase, they were afraid. It's exactly what Paul wanted, I believe. When they heard that they were Roman citizens, they were afraid. What do they do? They have utterly humiliated them. Again, that's cultural. Here we'd be all up in arms about rights and all those kinds of things. There, you're utterly humiliated if you're beaten. What do they do? They came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. They're handling them with kid gloves, we say. They apologize for what they've done. Now, if they cause trouble to the church, which they will, of course, but as they cause trouble to the church, they're going to be thinking about this Paul guy and Silas and their group that we broke the law to flog. A little space is created here for the new believers, a little freedom Indeed, they exercised a little freedom as they went, at verse 40, out of the prison and visited Lydia. The house is open again. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The emphasis again, which we don't have time for, on discipleship of new believers, stabilizing them in the faith, calling them to perseverance and to faithfulness. The implications as well of Lydia again sacrificing her home and making it what would likely have been a gathering spot for this church, which, as was read earlier, had overseers and deacons in not very long down the road. It was a church that took root, that prospered because of this suffering by Paul and Silas and their faithfulness to the gospel. And what must we gain? I hope we've gained it by now, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to transform any kind of person and draw together all kinds of people in the joy of Christian fellowship. We have here such diverse people. We have here a wealthy merchant woman from Asia Minor. We have a demon-possessed Greek slave girl 
with no freedom or wealth, at least delivered from demonic oppression. We have a pagan Roman jailer and his household and Lydia's household. We have the formation of a solid church against all expectations, conquering hearts and bringing people of so diverse avenues together here in this church. The power of God's gospel is awesome. I think honestly at the heart of our struggle is we don't believe that. We don't at least believe it like we should. And we're ashamed of it for some strange reason. The proof of that is that we're so hesitant to risk anything to declare it. It is illegal to be flogged in this culture for your religious beliefs. It's not necessarily mean that we won't be imprisoned. There certainly is no law against ridicule and rejection. I wonder, do we really believe in the power of the gospel to transform? Do we believe, secondly, in the part of suffering in the process of taking the gospel? It will be a labored advance against resistance, always. The gospel message that's proclaimed by the false prophets in our day is one of ease and prosperity. It's a wicked message. It has nothing to do with the New Testament Scriptures. The reason it is so popular and and lines people's pockets with money is because it's what people want to hear. And that's the only appeal. There's no power in it. There's just greed and self-centeredness. I can be healthy, wealthy, and stupid. What a deal. Forgive me. It's amazing how people are taken in. The message of the gospel is always pressed forward with suffering. Johnson writes, to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth, Jesus' witnesses must unmask treasured idols, encountering hostility from those whose security is shaken by God's truth. We need to be gracious, we need to be winsome, we need to be gentle. But let's remember, we are attacking idols when we share the gospel of Christ. Don't be surprised by some resistance. And may we together as a church pause here today and pray for the Spirit. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God. People from all walks of life have not been ashamed to honor Michael Jackson because of the power of his cross-cultural music. How can we be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformational power to save and to unite souls in Christ? May we not be ashamed of the gospel and may we rejoice that it is the power of God. Have you received it? Have you trusted it? Have you believed in the name of the Lord Jesus? If you have, run with that truth and take it to a lost and needy world. If you have not, today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin and embrace Christ as Savior. Let's bow for prayer.
We thank you, Father, for the wonder of your word and for the power of the gospel and pray that we might be faithful with this great power. It's not in our hands to wield as such, but it is ours to obey, and we plead that you would work through us to open hearts. For anyone separated from Christ, I pray that you would bring salvation to that household today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.